Better late than never as Kenyatta, Mark and I finally give you a rundown of our favorite movies of the previous year. From small indies to superhero temples, narrative to documentary, and theater to home viewing, we had a blast going over each other's picks for the movies that stuck with, with us the most from 2021. Remember, you can join the Boston Screenwriters Group on meetup.com and RSVP for a Screenwriters Virtual Forum, peer reviewing scripts, giving feedback on fellow writers' work while networking with them as well. Please check out the links on our Anchor.fm profile to follow us online, donate, or leave us a nice message to let us know how we're doing. We hope to see you at one of these virtual forums. Until then, enjoy the podcast. All right. So, as always, I like to give a welcome to screenwriters, aspiring writers, film lovers, and everyone in between to the latest episode of Script to Screen, the Boston Screenwriters Group podcast, hosted by myself, J.C. Stewart, uh, uh, Kenyatta Hoskins, and Mark Liddell, where we come in and give screenwriter, filmmaker, and film lovers perspective on movies and shows we want to share our thoughts with, share our thoughts on. Whenever you're giving us a listen morning, noon, or night, we hope to be a great part of your listening cues. We hope to be the fun stuff in your day with these in-depth discussion on film, TV, streaming, and other things we love to talk about. And I'll start out with the intros. I've been a co-organizer of the Boston Screenwriters Group for over seven years, helping out the founder, Deborah Sharif, with the meetups, where we help any level of experienced screenwriter peer review the screenplays with other members. I'm also a local filmmaker on the lower end of budgets, but I'm always up with uh, ready, always up with coming up with movie ideas and ready to film. Now, with all that settled, I'll pass it off to my co-organizer and friend, Kenyatta. Hey, what's up, folks? Uh, my name is Kenyatta Hoskins. I've been a co-organizer of the Boston Screenwriters Group for over three years now. Um, I lost count after three. But anyways, um, yeah, we're on YouTube. Check our YouTube channel. Uh, comment, subscribe, uh, share. Uh, don't be shy. You know, we're all family here, so uh, come in and, and join us there. And we have a Facebook group, so if you're interested in screenwriting, uh, we post a lot of uh, videos and uh, articles, and we share, actually, we share published uh, screenplays uh, from anywhere from the latest stuff to the uh, older stuff. And um, we also Instagram and, you know, all the, you know, all the good stuff. So we're everywhere. So come check us out. Don't be shy. And... uh, Good morning, this Sunday morning, and um, I hope people are staying warm and safe. Thank you. Hey everybody, it's Mark Lydell, longtime uh, Boston educator, lover of films, um, actor a little bit, uh, almost half a lifetime ago, so it seems. Um, always happy to be here with you to talk about all things uh, film, and I guess in this case, uh, some series related stuff um, as we kind of, live in this world where film and TV and streaming is kind of blending into one thing. So we're going to talk about uh, some of our, our favorites from last year. Yeah, the reason why I was uh, I was stammering over my good friend and uh, co-organizer for uh, five years now, Kenyatta, is because I'm very excited to talk about it because uh, it's our favorites from the past year. Are friendly getting around to it, uh, but hey, you know, it's uh, January, February, it's uh, dumping ground for movies, uh, so there's not really anything new to really talk about, so hey, let's just uh, take inventory of the past year. Um, so yeah, this is our favorites, not necessarily best, uh, not necessarily, you know, you know, grand cinematic experiences, but just the ones that resonated with us uh, the most from the past year. Uh, from new releases to uh, some uh, TV, I believe. But uh, does anyone want to start us off with their own lists? <laughs> lists and picks? Well, well okay. I, I mean, we could go um, one by one. So, like I said, I didn't number mine. 
And this is kind of a strange year because um, I think I will have a lot more superhero movies on my movie list um, than I've ever had in the past, even though, you know, I do enjoy that genre, but this was a strange year, um, you know, things going straight to um, HBO Max and um, things going to the movies and, you know, that, that, that they come and go, and, you know, just movies, it's just, it's a tough, it was a tough go for movies this, you know, this past year due to the pandemic. So I guess um, I'm gonna try to say uh, my best for last. So I guess I could go um, right now and just, I'm, 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 I'm gonna name one movie you guys could uh, go off from there, but uh, Don't Look Up. It came out at the end of 2021, and that came on Netflix. And um, Leonardo DiCaprio, he did such a good job uh, acting-wise. And I think everybody in that film basically did a good job. So, you know, it's a comedy, like an in-the-world type of thing. So it's like a, um, you have these astronomers, and then you have this, uh, uh, meteor coming to Earth that's going to destroy the Earth, and people are not listening to the scientists. And um, it's just Adam McKay wrote it. So, you know, he's, if you're not familiar with Adam McKay, he did The Joker uh, a couple years ago, and he's very known for a lot of comedy stuff. So, I'm going to say, don't look up very enjoyable movie i could see this multiple times and i just enjoyed it so that's my first pick for my favorites of 2021 yeah haven't seen the uh uh don't look up uh, yet i know it's uh, heavily star-studded uh, you know every role is you know an a-lister and everything uh haven't gotten into it yet uh i know it dropped on netflix at the end of uh, december but uh, yeah, I've heard uh, I've heard mixed things about it. Uh, you know, uh, in regards to sort of the allegory about climate change and uh, um, in our current situation uh, dealing with COVID. But um, uh, yeah, I, I'm not, and also I'm not the I haven't been the biggest uh, fan of Adam McKay's work. Uh, the, I, well, it's interesting. I I I do like uh, you know before he sort of did this career sort of um, pivot uh, to more serious uh, political satire. Uh, I, I think he was a very fine a comedic director uh, pairing with Will Ferrell with uh, the other guys and uh, a few other uh, very great comedies, but. Um, um, thus far, his uh, foray into sort of more, you know, quote unquote, serious stuff with uh, the big short and vice uh, haven't really uh, hit the nail with me. Um, I think there's something not quite uh, there with it. But um, I'm curious about uh, his latest. Uh, it's gotten a lot of buzz uh, online, uh, you know, uh, both ways, good and bad. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that uh, it's mentioned here. Uh, but uh, maybe hopefully Mark, um, I don't know if Mark was able to get to it. So yeah, I, I it's funny the thing is my wife and I um when that one just released back in December, started to watch it. Um and I again I, I did not complete it. I'm not saying it's a bad film by any stretch of the imagination, it's just that you know, I did not see much in the way of previews of I heard about it. I heard that this film was coming out with Star Studded, as you mentioned, um, kind of apocalyptic story. 
And I was ready to sit down with my popcorn and watch an apocalyptic movie. And it was a comedy. So it's almost like, you know, grabbing a glass and you think that you're going to have lemonade in it and it's milk, right? It's like, it's, you weren't expecting that flavor. Um, so I was in the mood for that at that time. I've not gone back to it since. Uh, with all the, the glut of what's out there, I've not kind of circled back to it, I'm sure. Um, with this um, uh, commendation from Kenyatta that I'm, I would go ahead and, and check it out sometime in the near future. But I was, you know, it was, it was milk in my lemonade glass when I, when I tried to taste it. Um, so again, not knocking it. This was not what I expected. Didn't expect, you know, a comedy. Uh, I was expecting more something serious. Um, so again, I'll, I'll revisit that at, at some point. All right. Uh, so yeah, I'll start off my list and I, I'm going to cheat a little bit because uh, I'm going to do some, uh, uh, my own personal sort of double feature in, in order to get uh, double feature picks in order to like uh, provide a theme for uh, some of these movies. And, uh, you know, yeah, and I get to mention more, talk about more movies. So I think that's, that's good for everyone here, but uh, I'm going to start off with best surprises so that I was able to discover last year um in ter for different reasons uh so my first one is uh pig with um starring nicholas cage by a first-time director i believe uh michael sonarski and um you know um i am a, i am actually a big fan of nicholas cage uh you know uh his current uh run of um manic uh you know come uh, manic roles, uh, you know, are hit and miss for me, but uh, here he really gets to shine in a huge dramatic role. And I keep on telling people he's a great dramatic actor. I mean, Academy Award winner, uh, you know, 30 years ago for leaving Las Vegas and everything. Uh, and here he really gets to shine again uh, and bringing those dramatic skills back. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The synopsis for this movie sort of reads as a parody of, uh, you know, a current, uh, you know, a current Nicolas Cage movie, a, uh, a truffle pig of his, uh, this recluse that lives in the woods is stolen from a kidnap or pignapped uh, from uh, Nicolas Cage's character. And he has to go find it. And he goes on a trail of revenge in order to um, sort of find the person responsible. But uh, it's actually taken like, surprisingly seriously it's very um uh it's very down to earth it's uh it's not your typical revenge sort of uh, uh flick uh there's uh there's a lot of there's a, and there, it has maybe one of the best scenes of the of the past year within a restaurant and i won't give it away because it's kind of just listing stuff we, we're not going in depth uh but that restaurant scene is absolutely just uh, breathtaking uh in terms of the dialogue and acting and uh, I'll pair it with uh, a surprise of a movie I wasn't looking forward to at all, but uh, uh, the magic of Spielberg sort of shines through uh, West Side Story. Uh, I wasn't quite looking forward to another, uh, so for a remake of uh, West Side Story, I think, you know, the 61 version is just fine on its own, but uh, I think uh, Spielberg and company, they really... Um, they they made a lot about they made a lot with uh, sort of uh, reimagining uh, the um, the story and reimagining sort of a lot of the the songs uh, rearranging some songs here and there um, and you know it's uh, Sondheim you know uh, Sondheim lyrics by Sondheim rest in peace so I mean the those that those songs are always going to be timeless and here I think he uh, the uh, the movie sort of revitalizes that and uh, on top of that I'm not a huge musical fan but I think uh, this one will get you you know dancing in the aisles uh, because the i mean again the songs are just timeless and they're just effusive and uh, full of energy 
so those are my uh, first two picks of uh, from the past year. Wow, you're dancing in the aisles. That, that's interesting to know. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I um, sadly uh, have not seen either uh, the latest West Side Story or Pig. I think, um, well, I, I didn't venture out to the theater to check out West Side Story or Pig, and I'm not sure uh, if and when, well, where, where if, if they are available for streaming, I can find them. Would you happen to know, uh, are they available for streaming at this point? West Side Story is still, of course, playing in theaters, but Pig is on Hulu. So oh, definitely highly recommended. Highly recommended. I'll, I'll certainly check out Pig uh, very soon. Um, yes, I don't have really comments on those. I've not seen them. Um, like you, uh, Jeff, I, I can't call myself a, a musical fan. Uh, even some of my favorite movies that do have musical numbers in them, it's like, ooh, sometimes it's like, mm, this kind of breaks from uh um the action but in a musical that's what it is it's like you know you break off into song uh when a character is inspired by x y or z i always find that a little bit um um i don't know it removes me from the experience i know that it's meant to be musical but i just always have a difficult time reconciling whatever dramatically is happening with someone breaking off into song or gang members pirouetting or you know that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll check out both of them, but Pig, of course, immediately uh, after we're done here. Um, have you have you seen those two, uh, Kenyatta? Well, okay, West Side Story. I haven't even seen the old one, and um, I, I, I never made a secret how I feel about musicals, and uh, that's one of my least favorite genres. Um, even if I like the music, it's just, um, I guess probably the last musical, you know, I was okay with was uh, the Beyonce, I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it's on Disney, something King or something. Black is something King. Like yeah, Black is King. But I, I, I take that more like a, a, a long music video, you know, um, just like Thriller was like a, just a long music video. I didn't really consider those like, but anyways, um, I mean, if I do come across it or streaming West Side Story, Steven Spielberg, you know, I'll check it out. You know, uh, I, I will try. I, I did try La La Land. I did try um, Hamilton and stuff like that. I mean, if it catches me, I'll, you know, it is what it is. But I did see Pig and I do agree that um, I'm not saying that uh, Nicholas Cage is underrated, but he does tend to overact at times. He does ham it up and everything like that. But, you know, if you like Nicolas Cage, you really like Nicolas Cage. I mean, this guy is one of the hardest working people <laughs> that I actors around because this guy, I don't know how many movies he's made. I mean, every time I turn around, he'll make three or four movies a year. And um, Pig, I, he did a good job of Pig in the restaurant scene, I agree. Uh, it was a pretty good scene. Um, like like you said, I'm not gonna give it away, but um, overall, I I I wasn't too enamored with it. Uh, I was kind of bored to be, you know, uh, completely honest. Uh, but a lot of people do like it, so um, it's subjective. So you know, uh, just based on the fact that some people love it, you you know, give it a try. You 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 might be one of those who does like it. Um, you know, I'm always willing to check out a Nicolas Cage uh, movie. 
uh, even if it has bad reviews, you know, just to see, you know, I'll try. If I like it, I'll keep watching. If I don't, you know, but Pig, I saw it all the way through. And um, yeah, I, I didn't like it as much as you, Jeff, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. So uh, on my list, and again, this is not necessarily the best movies of 2021. And I, I do recognize I haven't been to the theater and seen a lot uh, in that, you know, year pandemic, of course. And then, you know, those that are available via streaming, I've seen some, um, but one movie that we've already reviewed on this uh, podcast um, has kind of grown on me. I mean, it, it was always one that I appreciated, but the more I think about it and the way it was crafted and um, the fact that this is a first time director and some of the challenges around making it um, a period piece um, has got me to, uh, you know, I guess, build an appreciation, a stronger appreciation for this movie. And that is Passing by Rebecca Hall. Um, you know, once I got beyond the, the, the fact that in no way, shape or form would I ever assume the two ladies at the center of this movie were passing or could pass in my world, at least being a black person who have, have, has relatives who look like both of them in terms of, you know, what their, their, their facial features are like. Um, yeah, but once I got beyond that, I, I, I really um, respected um, the care it took to, to set this uh, this kind of period piece in motion and the, the creativity that was used to kind of mask the fact that, of course, we're filming this in the 2020s, um, certainly on the lower end of, the, of budgets in terms of, of films. And this is the first time uh, attempt at directing from Rebecca Hall, but just, you know, I was thinking back at the very first scenes from the movie, how they creatively had a lot of tight shots in, in, in areas um, in architecture that, that probably was from that period. Um, so it seemed at least uh, if they weren't on a set and they would, you know, of course, um, sprinkle in a few uh, cars of the era uh, then, but they were still able to, you know, make you think that they were in that time. Along with it being set, um, in that way, the, the pacing uh, of the movie initially um, for me was an issue. But then, you know, when I think about um, if we're going to set it in this time and, and use some of the the the, 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 um, the set and the design and the costumes and everything else, the pacing should be similar to that era too. So <laughs> it was almost as if it was uh, um, paced in that way. And I think what most uh, strikingly, you know, hit me or was building within me since watching it is the kind of subtle uh, nuance, the ambiguity of the final scene. Uh, but it's left the audience uh, to, to wonder about what happened uh, in that scene without spilling the beans for those who haven't seen it. Um, so that is rare. I don't know, you know, I think these days there's always a desire to have a clean ending this is what it means and have it spelled out for you and if it's not spelled out for you there's going to be a sequel that will, will, will spell it out for you right but in this case there's of course no sequel it shouldn't be <laughs> I mean, but, um and it's left the audience with these questions and you've got to do a little bit of thinking or uh, on your own you, you ponder something once you're done and those are my favorite kind of movies where you after you're done with it you know you can have a conversation about well what did this mean or what actually happened and what do we you know and you're thinking about the characters um and and their you know propensity to do this and then their their inclinations to do that and you just wonder okay well 
what happened there. And everybody can have their own interpretation. I think that's the, the beauty of filmmaking in this way. And I think that's uh, you know, a, a triumph for Rebecca Hall in her first attempt to leave people with something to ponder once they left the, the well, the theater, or I guess you could say this is Netflix, the screen, your, your home TV screen. Yeah, I concur with everything you just said. Passing, I was debating whether to put it in the top 10, I guess, on any given day. Um, you know, whatever move strikes me, it could bump its way in. But um, I really like the film uh, for some people. I try to recommend it to my mother, but she wasn't interested because it was in black and white. I said, well, what are you talking about? You grew up with black and white TVs. But anyways, I guess she's not into black and white anymore. Like, I, I personally, I like black and white. Well, anyways... Uh, like I concur with everything you said, and like on any given day, it could break into the top, top 10. Um, and ironically, um, I know we talked about this before, but yet, you know, they don't really pass for us. Uh, we, we know right away, but ironically, the director of the film, she should have acted her own film because I didn't know she was black until this movie came out. And, and, and um, when they talked about the film, they talked about her background. I said, oh, the whole time, even though she was. So ironically, I, I think she should have been in the film. Um, being one of those, uh, you know, director, actors, kind of like a Woody, you know, Woody Allen is always in his films. But yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said. One more thing you mentioned, you know, the, um, Rebecca Hall herself, you know, being a person of color and us not knowing it, maybe she should have acted in that role. I did some kind of research after it because she had talked about her grandfather. They suspected her grandfather might have been black or whatever. Um, <laughs> I, she didn't have to go back that far. Her mom, uh, who I looked, at, I looked up her mom, her mom visibly, I mean, I don't know why there's any question that this is a black woman. Um, I don't know why Rebecca Hall was going back to her grandfather because anybody, I mean, she was more um, phenotypically black looking than either of the, the two women who were in the film passing, the two leads, I guess you'd say. Um, so yeah, th there shouldn't be any question as to who I, Rebecca Hall was for herself because her mom visibly is, is black. Now for us, the audience who don't know her mom or her other lineage, obviously we might not know, but Rebecca Hall should have had no question. And, and the way she kind of put it in her interviews that she's kind of, she was trying to come to to grips with the fact that maybe her grandfather was black. Well, no, her mom was obviously black. Her mom's like a famous uh, opera singer or something like that. Um, but yeah, anyway, I just found it odd that, that her, in, her, in her interview, she was saying that there's some question about her grandfather when her mother is obviously phenotypically black. You kind of already covered, yeah, passing was passing was great. It didn't quite crack my uh, top 10 or maybe top 20, but yeah, definitely a worthy uh, directing debut from Rebecca Hall. Uh, again, I think I mentioned, you know, you can take a listen to the podcast uh, for the exact, but I, uh, but what I really liked was the dynamic between um, Tessa Thompson's character and with Nega's character. Uh, and uh, thankfully they are getting some awards recognition for the work, even though this is a very small movie, didn't get a ton of, um, uh, uh, didn't get a ton of uh, a push on Netflix's uh, end uh, in, or, in order for awards consideration, but uh, uh, thankfully the uh, the work shines through. And uh, yeah, definitely good pick. Uh, very very nice understated drama that really uh, that really uh, comes to a head at the end. Uh, you know, and uh, you can uh, uh, take a listen to our spoiler review uh, with uh, when we talked about it. Uh, you know, a few months ago. 
Yeah, I even like Malcolm and Marie, but you know, just I guess that's an honorable mention. But anyways, my next selection would be The Harder They Fall. And um, so this is a Western uh, by James Samuel. And um, this is his actually his second film, the first film, um, I guess they consider a feature, but it wasn't quite that long. I think it was not even an hour long. But anyways, uh, he has propensity it seems like to uh, characters in this film that have names of real people, but the characters in his films don't portray those real people in real life. Like they, they actually are like Stagecoach Mary um, and, and, and others as well. Um, they, the films aren't really portraying them. They're not biography, they're just using the name, which is, I thought was kind of, weird which was one of my critiques of the film but i mentioned it here because it was just so it was just so much fun to watch uh how, you know it was very fast paced it was you know it, it, it had a lot of swag to it i, I, I would say you know and, and it was cool i mean um i've been watching a lot of westerns lately and i just had to mention this uh Idris elba uh, of course he's Wonderful everything he does. The Keith Stansfield, great Regina uh, King, um, you know, also great. So it's like, uh, you know, this is something you could, and everybody, I mean, this was so anticipated for so long. And when it finally came out, it's like, uh, it was very popular. And, um, you know, I mean, it has its flaws, like I said, but it's just so, it was just so, much fun to watch. So, you know, we did talk about that in the past podcast. So um, you could go check that out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It was extremely fun to watch, engaging. Um, and I have some of the same reservations that you do, Kenyatta, about uh, the usage of the names of real people then having this kind of fictionalized account. It's almost like, you know, that <laughs> the movie, um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, right? In that case, you've got a bunch of fictional characters kind of meshed together, but I think there's a certain danger that comes in when you're talking about taking real historical figures and doing the, the same thing, taking that kind of license with them, especially in an era where people are not are, are not inclined to, to to read about history that often. I think we're in an era where we're reading a lot less and we're watching a lot more. So, yeah, I, I really enjoy that. It's on my list as well. I just wish they would have either chosen different names or even used the, the characters, the people that were historical figures and made them more true to who they actually were. You know, whether it's Stagecoast Mary or, or, or Bass Reeves or, you know, all these people we're talking about actually existed. And when you take this kind of creative license and ends up shifting the public consciousness around these individuals, um, to the point that, you know, they don't even know who the real person was. They end up being this um, um, exaggerated character who may or may not have behaved in a certain way um, because, you know, we're not, again, inclined to read, uh, unfortunately. And I just think it does them a disjust an injustice, rather, um, when we describe them in, in these terms. So great, you know, in terms of energy and excitement around the movie, Next time, uh, Mr. Samuel, please 
pick different names when you do your movies this way because it, it's a lot of misinformation that goes on. Right. Uh, yeah, we talked about and we we talked about this one uh, previously as well. Uh, very fun movie. You know, um, usage of historical figures notwithstanding. Uh, yeah, just a fun time all around. A great cast. Uh, Regina Hall, uh, Regina King was was mentioned, but there's also of course Idris Elba and um, uh, Lakeith Stanfield and uh, the few others. I'm why am I blanking on? But uh, it's a great ensemble that uh, it's sort of the old standby sort of western trope a bad guy takes over a town and these uh a group of misfits and uh, uh and um and other sort of uh, wanderers come together to uh to fight them off but uh done with just a serious as kenyatta mentioned serious style and serious uh, uh great soundtrack so yep good uh, great pick so you know i would mention a movie and this is, goes back to what you mentioned before jeff about um kind of surprises or things you just weren't expecting. And I would say in any other year, any other time, maybe this wouldn't make my list. Um, and also if there had not been um, a film that preceded it, that just did so horribly um, with its similar name, I wouldn't ever think of it in these terms, but it's almost like um, my pick of the Suicide Squad benefits from the first Suicide Squad being just so God awful. Right. I mean, it's almost if that first Suicide Squad didn't exist, but I have this one so high. I just think this uh, recent movie, The Suicide Squad, um, was engaging, uh, exciting, uh, used um, some misdirection a little bit to, to start the movie off. It was pretty clever. Um, they, they used humor properly. In this, they got you to connect with some of the characters in ways that you would not expect. Um, they actually made it the Suicide Squad and in terms of, you know, um, people dying um, in the film. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, again, this was a breath of fresh air. I didn't expect this at all. I, I entered this totally believing that I would have just as much uh, disdain for this one as the, the original movie, which I, I that one I, I saw only um, on DVD, the, the original one, because I, I knew better. I could tell something about the way it was being constructed. But this one was refreshing. Um, and you've got uh, <laughs> these characters, uh, especially I'm thinking of uh, the, the rat catcher character that was kind of endearing and then her connection with uh, um, Idris Elba's uh, character, for the name of the actual characters in the movie, but uh, Daniela Melchior played Ratcatcher and Idris Elba played, don't know the name of the character. And you also have, of course, uh, Hollywood longtime uh, star in, a, in an interesting role, Sylvester Stallone playing the voice of a character. So um, and that character uh, also was, was pretty endearing. So yeah, really shocked by this. And again, most years wouldn't make my list, um, but it was, again, I think in part, it's the contrast between the two Suicide uh, Squad films that make this one kind of stick out. You know, um, this actually, it barely made my list. Just like I was debating putting out, it did actually make it. And I concur with everything you said. And um, in terms of the humor, I mean, I think I laughed so hard in this film as if it was a comedy. I think I laughed more at this than something that was meant 
it's strict, strictly to be a comedy. And um, I just like, uh, it, like very good cast. Like I said, Idris Elba, then John Cena, he, um, you know, he does his typical, he's, he's gonna have to change up because he's kind of starting to play the same in every movie now. So he's gonna have to uh, uh, change up a little bit. Um, and Peacemaker's actual HBO Max is kind of like a spinoff of that character having his own show, which isn't as good as the Suicide Squad. But anyways, um, I, I like a lot of folks in this, a lot of good acting. Um, everybody could tell everybody was into their roles. And um, and I love, um, why can I, uh, Waller, um, what's her name again? Uh, why is it escaping me? An actor who played Waller. Can people? Yeah, I, I just throw a blank as well. <laughs> well Viola anyway, David. Viola yeah, David. There you go. Viola, how can I forget her? I guess I'm, I just turned 50, so that's probably. Well, anyways, um, yeah, she, she just, she's just, a, oh my gosh, she just was just, she makes a good anti villain, I, I guess you would call her. But um, yeah, I, it, like I said, it's a strange year that a movie like this will crack my top. 10 list, but you know, it is what it is, you know, um, you know, we'll see what happens 2022 is, you know, we'll see what that list looks like. But in the past list, this, 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 this list is kind of, it's different, <laughs> you know what I mean? But no, but I really, it was a, it's a fun time. It was entertaining. It's something I could see multiple times. So yeah, that's, that's why I, I concur with you. I have not gone to the Suicide Squad uh, yet. Um, as I've mentioned, uh, you know, previous podcasts, I'm a little uh, in superhero fatigue at the moment, so I have to be very judicious with uh, what I want to watch from uh, comic book adaptations. Uh, and uh, the Suicide Squad, it didn't quite make it, but um, I know that uh, both uh, Kenyatta and Mark have been talking it up, uh, you know, for the past months or so. So yeah, I'll definitely try to get it in. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I've heard nothing. I've heard the only bad thing was it did poorly at the box office, uh, really. But uh, it seemed to please a lot of the fans who were com completely, uh, you know, uh, bull rushed by the uh, by the David Ayer version in uh, you know five years ago. But um, uh, definitely something I'll look out for. But uh, to continue on my sort of uh, sort of list of uh, sort of double feature sort of picks, I'm going to go with uh, adaptations of. Uh, of ye old writings. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, The Green Knight and Tragedy of Macbeth. Uh, uh, the Green Knight is an adaptation of an epic poem uh, set in the medieval time. It stars uh, Dev Patel as uh, Gawain, uh, the knight who um, uh, one Christmas Eve night uh, strikes down this mythical Green Knight figure uh, and um, is then tasked with finding the Green Knight again uh, because he has to receive a similar blow uh, in order to, um, in order to, uh, in order to have honor, and you know the, you know the old idea, old, old standby traditional ideas of uh, personal honor and sacrifice are, are really uh, sort of critiqued here. And in, uh, in, but the the main thing is that this is an absolutely outstandingly beautiful movie. I'm so glad I was able to see this in the, in the at the Coolidge with a friend of mine that uh, you know likes this weird side of stuff as well, and we were both just blowed over by uh, how 
how unbelievably gorgeous like every shot and every um composition looks um this is definitely something to see on the big screen i hope that this gets a sort of revival uh you know of all these movies that uh people were afraid to go out to see uh you know uh, understandably during the pandemic but i hope this gets a revival sort of screening series uh in the coming years and uh tragedy Macbeth is um not by the coen brothers it's only by one coen joe and uh, it uh, stars Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand as the power couple from hell, the Macbeths. And, um, and uh, Kenyon and I saw this uh, actually uh, on, I'm, on an IMAX screen, no less. And uh, it's also a uh, similar vein, gorgeous to, to look at. Uh, very, uh, very lively adaptation of the Shakespeare play. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I may be a little bit biased because uh, Macbeth is my favorite Shakespeare play. Uh, so I kind of know it inside and out. Uh, and uh, here they, uh, it's a about a, an hour and 40 minute version of a four hour long play. So they only do sort of the real big beats uh, as it were, but uh, I think they do it very well. And it's of course, uh, Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand uh, playing, um, uh, playing uh, uh, Lord and Lady Macbeth. So, I mean, you can't go, really go wrong there. Uh, the only, <laughs> the only misstep I, I, I feel is that they just missed a grand opportunity for Denzel to shout, uh, Macduff ain't got shit on me. But of course, uh, that's just, um, uh, <laughs> that's just a, yeah, yeah. That's just a personal thing. I, but, uh, I guess it would have broken the, the reality of the, of, of the, of this particular reality, but, uh, two outstanding adaptations of well-worn works, uh, from, uh, Elizabethan and medieval times that are highly recommended. I will say yeah. that, you know, now that I know that well, I should have even just taken a look to, to see the runtime. Now that I know it's not four hours, maybe I'll, I'll check it out. <laughs> because I was like, oh, four hours? Nah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I've seen, you know, all the previews of it. And obviously from the, the previews alone, one can tell the cinematography is amazing, right? Um, and, you know, I, I guess kudos to those who would even think about even, you know, uh, releasing this story, right? I mean, this is, of course, part of the literary canon, but I think less and less you're going to have these types of movies in the theater, um, classic or not. Uh, you just wonder about how much longer are you going to be able to have uh, Shakespeare uh, in the theater, given the tentpole movement? Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely check the one out. It's, it's on HBO Max as well, is it not? Apple TV for Tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, Apple TV. Okay, that's why I haven't seen it. <laughs> I don't have Apple TV. Yeah, I actually saw both of those films, and I knew that was going to be probably your top ten, uh, <laughs> Jeff. But um, ironically, um, both those films kind of have the same uh, circumstances for me in terms of, I did not see those films in the best circumstances, which is when I saw, uh, you know, Macbeth, I was having trouble with my ears, my hearing a little bit. And, and it's like, I, you know, it was kind of hard for me. So I have to see it again. But it was beautiful. It was really, I love that kind of like that black. Like I said, I don't know, I'm a cycle black and white. But um, also, it's, it's like it had that old school feel to it. So I love, I mean, I'm a fan of the Coen Brothers anyway. I've seen almost all their films and 
you know, I'm just a fan of them. So uh, the only thing I wish in terms, I mean, Denzel Washington was amazing. And he he had one of the best performances of 2021 for me, in my you know my view. Um, I mean, he just brought a lot of swag to the to the role and everything, and um, he was just amazing. And I, I, he's not the only one. It's like a lot. Of, everybody did a good job in this. Uh, Francis McDermott. Um, what's the name? Uh, Francis was it McDermott? Francis McDormand. Yeah. Yep. McDormand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. She's always good, and um, it's just full of good performances. The only thing I wish personally, you know, um, I am not into Shakespeare as some folks are. I, if, it, if it, to me, uh, like you said, how, how long was my hour, hour 40 minutes or something like that? Or, yeah, hour 40, hour 45, something like that. Yeah, now. If 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 you like in terms of um, if it was a Shakespearean language, it was just you know regular language, and then um, you could have made three because like the action sequences weren't a lot in there, but um, it's a good story and everything. But if you kind of made it the, the 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 action sequences more epic, you could have stressed three hours, and I mean it would have been great. But as it is. You know, if you're into Shakespeare, definitely. This is, I could see this being your top 10. Um, but like I said, I would have to see it again because I didn't see it under the best circumstances. And then the same thing with the Green Knight. This is when I was uh, really sick with COVID and I'm stuck at home. And, you know, um, due to my symptoms, it's like I was watching, you know, that's not much you can do when you're already recovering. So um, I didn't have a lot of patience. So Green Day was kind of, you know, I would have to see that again to really formulate a true opinion, opinion on it. But as a stand, if I were to say, talk about it right now, it, I couldn't stand it, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But I'm willing to give it, you know, a second shot because like I said, I didn't see it under the best of circumstances. I don't know. That's understandable. Um, yeah, definitely. Green Knight, especially. Uh, yeah, if you're not uh, transported into this sort of uh, quasi-medieval, hyper-realistic world uh, at the at the start, yeah, you're going to suffer a little bit uh, throughout. Uh, but again, I just thought it was just unbelievably gorgeous. Uh, Dev Patel and uh, the rest of the ensemble do such a great job of sort of filling out this world. Uh, and um, I should mention, uh, yeah, David Lowry uh, directed it. Uh, he's a great, uh, I've liked most of his stuff thus far, uh, but he, yeah, his thing is always about, you know, how myths, you know, make us, uh, you know, our, our stories, like uh, our personal stories, our personal histories, kind of uh, how they manifest themselves in real life. And here, this is done so grandly and so, you know, uh, hugely beautiful that uh, I was just taken with the entire thing all the way through. Yeah, so um, I guess my next selection, I know I said I was going to leave one of my favorites, my most favorites for last, but I'm just going to throw this out here. And um, like I said, you know, my list is different, you know, but my next one is Wrath of Man. Okay. And um, and I'm not sure how many people have heard of this film, but uh, Jason Stratham is in this film and he's actually the 
the main character. And um, now, it was directed by, um, it was directed by, I'm trying to think, uh, Richie, Guy Richie. So, you know, I, I, I like some of his films and everything like this, you know. So his last two films are different. Uh, was Wrath of the Man and um, he had, you know, another film uh, uh, before that. But um, this one, I don't know what it is. I just, ever since I saw it, in the way it's told, like um, I, 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 I kind of love the pacing of it. You know, it goes in one direction, and you think it's gonna go in one direction, and all of a sudden things kind of—that's kind of his style too. It seems like, you know, like the first part of film, it's like you have to get used to. It's like it's like a different language, and once you get used to the language, in a his kind of like style of uh, storytelling and then when it kind of like switches up on you it's like oh everything comes together you get what i'm saying uh, and that happens a lot in these films it's like because at first you're just like what is going on you're not quite sure you're trying to understand it and then everything just ends up coming together you know what i mean um so basically this is guy He's mysterious. He's uh, working, you know, one, you know, the, um, those trucks. Working one of those trucks that transports, you know, kind of like uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, armored trucks delivering money from here to different businesses and carrying around lots of money. So it's like this is mysterious. Like you get to learn, you know, who this guy is. Some of that mystery unravels, and you know, and it's just. Kind of like um, when you find out what the mystery is, when all that unravels, you kind of, because you, you're guessing your way through it. It's like, who is this guy? Why is he here? Um, what's the story? But what, once everything unravels, it's like, oh, okay, I got it now. So this is, I don't know, something about this film, man. I mean, uh, I could watch it over and over, and I really liked it. Uh, Josh Harnett is in it. Um, uh, Clint Eastwood Sutton is in it. Um, you know, I'm sorry. From every time I see him, I always refer to him as Clint Eastwood's son. You know, Scott Eastwood, but I know that's his name. But I always refer to him Clint Eastwood. So he looks just like him too. But um, a lot of you know, a lot of good actors, and they had a good cast. Um, so if you haven't seen it, I would definitely say give it a try. Have not seen a Wrath of Man. I'm not the hugest Guy Ritchie fan, uh, so I kind of uh, always don't give priority to his releases. Uh, but I have heard a lot of uh, great things about Wrath of Man. Uh, it's uh, like supposed to be a great Jason Statham support performance. So, um, and um, it's supposed to be sort of different from Guy Ritchie. So I'm very curious. I, I do want to sort of give it a while. But uh, something in a similar vein that I didn't quite crack my crack my top ten. Uh, was um, uh, sort of another sort of different sort of revenge thriller, Writers of Justice, um, with uh, Mads Mikkelsen. I've heard it's sort of in a similar vein as Everlasting Man, so that's why I'm mentioning it. But uh, uh, sort of um, uh, they do sort of a different sort of thing with uh, the the revenge genre. They really delve into it. They really pick it apart, and they sort of um, 
play around with it. Uh, it ranges from uh, uh, comedy to drama to heavy uh, action. And uh, I think they, they meld all those very well. But uh, Wrath of Man uh, is definitely, uh, I'll put it on the list of uh, stuff to queue up. That, that, that Mattis Mickelson film, what was the name of it again? Writers of Justice. And it's actually right on Hulu. So, also oh, okay. I, yeah, I, I think I came across it. I was like, it had good, a good rating. I said, you know, let me, now that you mentioned it, I got to check it. We said on Hulu, right? We're on Hulu. Yep. Okay. I'm definitely going to check that out. Mm-hmm. And I'll check out, you know, Wrath of Man as well. I've not seen it. Um, again, much like, oh, I really echo the sentiments of, of Jeff and that, you know, uh, Guy Ritchie's never been one of my my favorite guys. And it might be in part of, you know, due to what you're talking about, Kenyatta, in terms of, you know, his style almost requires you to understand another language. I mean, uh, I don't know if that, well, for me, it's it's like most of his films also uh, have these guys with heavy uh, British accents too. And for me, I, I almost need like subtitles, heavy British accents. I almost need to have, you know, them give me subtitles so I know what the heck they're talking about. And even if that were the case, there are also some heavy, um, I don't know, British-isms, if you will, ways of speaking, uh, slang that sometimes uh, kind of go above my head. I'm like, well, huh? So while I'm trying to figure out what they're trying to say, they've said the next thing that I'm trying to figure out. It's like it's compounded, but I'll definitely check out Rat the Man. Um, on oh, my list, like, I would like to... Hold, just real quick, just let you know that uh, the Rat the Man is very different film from Guy Ritchie. You know, because you you know, snatch and um, lock stock and two smoking barrels and stuff like right. that. This is very Americanized. You don't need any subtitles. Okay. <laughs> nothing like that. So this is a quite different film from him. Okay. And it's actually it's very surprising that he directed this. You would never know. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll definitely uh, check that one out. Um, on my list, I'm going to break uh, what we're doing. I know we've been talking about uh films but i want to include something that, that could be considered a film um but i think they broke they broke it up into four parts and made it into a television series from a film director that i really respect um raul peck uh his exterminate all the brutes documentary um it's four hours long and it could have been one four-hour movie they broke it into four parts I am shocked that it made its way onto TV um, because what he does in that that documentary is he gets to the heart of, you know, why um, this country in particular is is reluctant to talk about the truths of its own history. I mean, one thing that this country I, I would say is often guilty of is you know not being truthful about it, you know her past. Right, they, they talk about American exceptionalism. I think the one thing that's very exceptional about us is that you know we we hide our truth, or we hide behind it uh, in, in certain ways, and this just blows the lid off of you know, a lot of uh, the lies that are told about uh, this country and its history. Uh, it's it's sobering in, in its honesty, and I think that anybody who has an interest in history, and I've, you know, should definitely check this out or an interest in you know hearing uh, facts about what this country has been about, uh, unfiltered, uh, to definitely check that out. I, I can't think of anything that is higher on my list than Exterminate All the Brutes by Raul Peck. You might recall he uh, also 
the, the fantastic uh, documentary about James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro, a couple years back, maybe three years back now, um, maybe more than that, time flies. But um, yeah, he's a Haitian uh, director who's done both documentary films as well as uh, dramatic work, Lumumba. Uh, fantastic guy. If you don't know Raul Peck, you should, you should know who he is. Check out Exterminate All the Brutes, available on HBO and HBO Max. Excellent choice, Mark. Uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, everything you just said, but because of, uh, you know, in the year when um, a certain political, uh, people with certain political agendas are banning history and, uh, you know, banning literature on on all sorts of, you know, co- quote unquote, controversial subjects, uh, the stuff that, uh, or uh, the stuff that pisses off white people. Uh, this is the, this is the thing that you should uh, yeah search for and watch and uh, discover why that is uh, the fact, um, as you put it so succinctly. Uh, yeah, this, this is a fantastic, just epic documentary series uh, that will just um, it's stunning. Like uh, he blends together uh, both historical archival like records and uh, dramatic uh, dramatized elements uh, from a movie I believe that was he tried to make. Uh, uh, recently, but uh, it fell through. So he took some footage from that and then included it here, and it works uh, works wonders. Um, yeah, the sort of this the history of colonialism and the the effects that we still suffer from uh, today is just uh, it's daunting. It's uh, it's revealing, and um, I'm not going to spoil it. But the last line of that is particularly just uh, just pointed and uh, just hits uh, hits home. Um, but definitely recommended. Um, but along those yeah. lines, oh, go go ahead, Kenya. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let me say a little bit about that. I'm surprised, like I said, like you said, I'm surprised they even this even got made because usually stuff like this, it doesn't get made. Um, with especially with the whole CRT thing going on, like even look at what they're doing with Mouse. Um, uh, Whoopi Goldberg just got in trouble for her comments because they were, and and I hope I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it, but. Um, her statement uh, that she made, and they were talking about mouse, and you have this critical race theory, and you have like, um, you know, you know, schools talking about uh, history that's not European, and I think CRT is being used to kind of like um, cancel that that side of history, you know, and um, like I said, I, I'm so, and because. We're in this environment now. I'm surprised this you know that film didn't get made. That that did get made and, and actually made it to HBO Max, and nobody's really talking about it really. But um, that definitely made my top ten of TV series, TV shows. So um, I, I totally agree with you. And I'll just add another sort of uh, overlooked uh, show that uh, came out uh, along the same vein. Uh, Barry Jenkins Underground Railroad uh, came on Amazon Prime earlier this year. It has since been sort of just almost uh, just shelved and uh, sort of uh, put in the forgotten bin. Uh, but uh, if you're a fan of Barry Jenkins, he brings his sensibilities to this very try, very extremely uh, brutal subject, but does it in a uh, great manner. It's not 12 Years a Slave, the series. It's not that. Uh, it's definitely uh, sort of lays out uh, this uh, this journey of uh, one particular slave and, uh, you know, the, her her journey to um, uh, to freedom and uh, or in the pitfalls thereof, and it's uh, told just very 
you know, as warmly as you can with this sort of subject, but uh, it's definitely, it's, it's 10 episodes, uh, but uh, it's definitely, it's also one of those uh, TV series uh, you actually can't believe got made, but thankfully that it's there, it's on the platform for anyone to discover it and hopefully more people do. And just in the vein, I guess, of like, um, exterminate all the brutes, uh, I would say one of the documentaries on Netflix, um, I mean, Netflix is kind of killing a little bit, but um, Sons of Sam, and it's about this journalist for the 40 years who's trying to um, blow the lid off of uh, the fact that, uh, you know, just if people don't know uh, the story behind the serial killer in New York. Uh, Spike Lee actually made a film, uh, uh, Son of Sam. Uh, Summer Sam, excuse me, and about the David Berkowitz uh, going around, uh, you know, going on his, you know, killing spree and everything. But this journalist, I guess, um, from his investigation, uh, discovered that uh, he didn't act alone. It was actually multiple people that were involved. But um, it was very eye-opening. It almost felt like that... Uh, People just want to close the case, and you know, and that, you know that, that kind of thing. Are a lot of movies where, uh, where you have like, you know, you have uh, cases you want to close, and then as soon as you have somebody, uh, then later on it seems like you know uh, it, it isn't as open and shut as you as it seemed originally. Initially. Um, people don't want it back open back up because then, you know, it kind of has uh, political ramifications and so on and so forth. I mean, people, when they close these high profile cases, they get promotions and so on and so forth. So to reopen things, even, you know, for the sake of justice, um, you know, it can it can it can make certain people look bad and so on and so forth. And like I said, it has political ramifications behind reopening cases. But you know, um, but what about truth and justice? So that kind of you know what was going through my mind while I was watching that documentary. Got to check that out, uh, Sons of Sam. Of course, I've seen the Spike Lee dramatization in Summer of Sam, like you mentioned, and I've seen a few things. You know. Um, it's like uh, a 2020-esque or 48-hours-esque kind of stuff on on, on uh, Son of Sam, um, but hadn't heard of this one, so I'll check that one out. Okay, and uh, so I want to give some, uh, let's see here, how can, I, how can I compare these two? Okay, so, um, okay, I'm going to go uh, a little Johnny Carson, weird, wild stuff. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, Censor and Teton, uh, sort of two movies. Uh, one is a straight horror movie and the other is kind of a horror movie slash other things. Uh, but uh, Censor is a uh, directorial debut from the United Kingdom, uh, Prano Bailey Bond. And it stars a film censor who takes, uh, is very meticulous about, you know, making sure, that, you know, the kids aren't being exposed to, you know, slashers and the blood and guts and, and all that. Um, but she eventually 
becomes obsessed over a certain uh, piece of film that she thinks uh, might have some connection to her long lost sister. And uh, she goes on a journey uh, to uh, find out more about it. And uh, this, this goes in some really uh, interesting directions and uh, like it goes, it goes for it. Uh, and by the end, uh, but it's definitely, it's maybe my favorite straight horror movie of last year uh, and a, uh, a great uh, directorial debut. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff uh, going on. Uh, I'll put it that way. And uh, Teton is, um, uh, let's see, how best to describe Teton. Uh, so it won the Palm Door of this year, you know, sort of famously. Uh, and uh, it's directed by Julie Ducournau. Uh, she did uh, Raw a few years ago, uh, and um, the easiest way I can say, uh, I do like Raw, I, but um, I thought that there's uh, a lot of stuff that could have been uh, improved on, and uh, oh boy, does there's, there's, uh, uh, Ducanau uh, sort of improve things, and it goes in various uh, 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 directions that uh, I wasn't expecting. Um, so this is sort of, uh, I don't really want to even give away the plot of this one. I kind of want people to go in cold since we're not really doing a spoiler sort of a review on it, but, uh, yeah. Uh, so everything, uh, but, but most likely if you are a film nerd, you have heard of this uh, some way because it did, again, did one, we win the palm door this year or last year, I should say, but, um, yeah, go in as cold as you can and, uh, see how long you can sit through it. <laughs> if you, if you can, uh, if you have uh, the sensibility in the stomach to, but um, uh, definitely weird, wild stuff uh, for those, those two. Yeah, Sensor, um, I did want to see that. So now that you recommended it, recommend because it's on Hulu, I believe, right? It's also on Hulu. Hulu is really, uh, yeah, Hulu is really coming through with uh, these releases. Right, right, right. And I've, I've always planned to see it. So now that you recommend, I'm definitely going to put that in more, you know, something I'm going to watch sooner rather than later. And Teton is, um, I every time I try to watch it, um, I had kids around, so of course. <laughs> don't, <laughs> yeah, don't have the kids. Don't have the kids for this one. Yep. Yeah, no, yeah, so no one, I, no one, this is an, this is an NC-17 hard. No, no one, uh, yeah, no kids allowed for this one. Yeah, yeah, so as, as soon as I have no kids around, I'm going to finish watching, but the part I did see it was very, it was, it was interesting. So um, I definitely want to see it as soon as I'm able to. So I, yeah, I, I think those are some pretty good picks. And horror is up my alley. So I'll definitely check out both of those. Uh, it's just, there's such a glut now in terms of horror. I mean, I've got the, the, the shutter streaming service and I just, I'm constantly trying to keep up with horror, but it seems like um, horror is plentiful. I think it's, um, profitable i think that it, it's uh so i've got an audience so i'll definitely check both of those out i've not seen either one of them mark you want to go next I, I do, do you have, have any time. yeah do you have any more that's a sure uh and again we've kind of crossed over uh into well i do have one more movie and, and one more series um, the series, I, I was trying to refrain from mentioning because I know that we've talked about this before and um, was on the last podcast you talked about in terms of comfort food, I believe, and that was uh, Squid Game. Um, again, surprise. Uh, I was not expecting to, to, to see uh, this engaging uh, of a series. 
um, having to stumble across it. Well, when it first came out, it was all over the place in terms of the, the Netflix promotion the first few weeks or so, and just jumped on it and, and, and you know, devour the whole thing. Like it was, it was certainly a binge watch, um, but I'm not alone in that. It's, it's the most watched series I think ever on Netflix. So um, it's, it's, no shock that somebody would have it on their, their their top list, but I really enjoyed Squid Game. What I I am kind of frustrated by is that initially uh, the creator of the show had discussed not having a sequel, and now there is one. I think it was so successful they threw enough cash, I guess, his way that he changed his tune on this. Some things are better, you know, better well left alone. I just think you could have left it as as is. I'm looking forward to a time when there's a successful movie or a series that just stands alone, even though you want to kind of go back to the same kind of feelings and uh, excitement you had around the original, sometimes just let them be their own standalone product um, makes it that much more uh, meaningful. Uh, reminds me of, we also mentioned not that long ago, uh, The Matrix, which that was a one and done as well. But, you know, Squid Game, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm anxiously, uh, awaiting the second season and hoping that it can bring back the same vibes, but I don't think you can replicate that first uh, season of Squid Game. Completely agree with you, Mark. Yeah, yeah, I have no problem with you bringing this one back. Uh, you know, we have, uh, from uh, Visual Comforts uh, from a few weeks ago, but um, yeah, it's a. Uh, uh, I think there's a reason why it's one of the most popular series on Netflix. You know, if you want to trust their uh, sort of metrics. Um, uh, internal metrics and everything but um yeah i uh, we'll see uh, like how he uh, how the uh filmmakers follow up uh sort of just a fantastic uh sort of uh, opening act and hopefully they can follow that up but uh yeah it's, it would be hard to replicate the initial shock of uh just watching this for the first time and seeing like um just how far people will you know, the, the, the competition and, you know, the rat race uh, that we're all in uh, sort of just drives people to do insane things and uh, cruel things. Yeah, definitely a great recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. And also it broke into my top 10 of TV shows in 2021. I mean, I, I love the things, I love the story and um, I'm pretty sure there's going to be plenty of people uh, have that in their, within some place in their top 10, um, Alice in Borderland. Some people think that's better, but I personally think Squid Games is um, better. I haven't finished watching Alice in Wonder uh, Borderland, but um, if you if you um, like I said, it's people who are eagerly anticipating season two of Squid Games. Um, if you if you if you're anticipating season two, in the meantime, you could check out Alice in Borderland. Okay. And um, I'm trying to think, what else should I mention here? There's so much stuff. Um, I there was a stuff that I was going to mention, but offhand, there's this one series. Okay, since we're talking about series, that even though, like I said, it's not perfect for me, because there was just, you know, what what is perfect? Um, but it was just so. When it was good, it was very, very good. And um, actually, I'm gonna do a double uh, feature of just like uh, <laughs> like Jeff does double feature. So one one thing I know um, 
uh, Jeff is going to agree with, and that's Midnight Mass. Now, yeah, Midnight Mass, I'm telling you, um, even though, like I said, it's not perfect, I think some of the um, monologues, or some of the dialogue was way too long and so on and so forth, but it was just, the good parts are just so good. Um, I, like I said, I, I think if some of the dialogue could have been done better, it, it would have elevated the material, but it, the material was just so good when it was good that I, I kind of forgave it for that. But it's like, it's one of those series I just can't get out my head. And um, I'll probably check it out October of this year. Maybe, they, you know, because there are certain films or whatever that you see, especially if you're a horror fan, you kind of revisit every one, two years, three years, or what have you. And this is, I could see this, revisit this one day. Okay, so that's one. And the other one, let me tell you something. I had to put this on, you know, favorite, the top 10, and that's Dexter, New Blood. Let me tell you something. And it's just one of those things where it's like, you can't wait to, to for the next, like when you, as soon as you, uh, finish watching the episode, you want to binge watch it, watch it. And um, it's one of those series that all the episodes that come out all at once, you have to wait weekly. And it's like eagerly, it's like as soon as you get mad almost because it's like, damn, I want, I want it now. You know what I mean? So people who, there's some people who wait till the season's over so they can binge watch, watch it. And um, I'm telling you, if I had done that, I would definitely would be up all night until I finished watching this thing. Now, just like I said before, that it's not perfect, but you know, um, but when it was good, it was just so good that you know. But it's and it's kind of you know, um, it could have been much better. Like the the, the weak parts of it, if it was, they've done it a little bit differently. It could even been even better, but as as is, uh, I won't say too much because um, I'm not sure if Mark Sark yet, and um, I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, I did. Yes, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's and I, I should have put it on my list too. But I for me, that's a, a 2022. I, I I didn't start watching it until uh, January, although it did come out I think in November or December initially. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Yes. Uh, how how do you feel about the? the how, I know you kind of disappoint. A lot of people are disappointed at how the first time it, you know the you know the um, it, how it ended. I think it was season eight or whatever. I think right. Was so yeah, what do you think I about hate, this ending. I again, I hated the original ending of of, of season eight. Uh, that that first run of the series. Um, this one was sh shocking to me um, and makes you wonder about the future. The, there will be a future, but um, just love getting reacquainted with Dexter again, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> and it was done cleverly. So those who loved the show previously would see, you know, uh, character, you know, here, there kind of weaved in, um, use some of the storylines, of course, from the old uh, series. And and just show how Dexter has changed and grown. Um, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to the next uh, installment. Even though, of course, um, 
it will be a little bit different than what we were used to seeing uh, without giving anything away. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm ticked that I left that off my list. Of course, of course, Dexter. And as far as uh, Midnight Mass, we, we hit that um, last time, last uh, um, comfort food. For me, that was amazing as well. Uh, again, to reiterate what you said about that series, um, thoroughly enjoyed it. I'll be revisiting it, you know, uh, yearly, if not more than that, I just, I just really appreciate uh, the, the care and attention taken. Um, and for me, again, yeah, there are some dialogues, some monologues rather that were lengthy, but I think it, it really um, allows characters to develop in ways that we don't often see in, in television shows or series. Uh, I really appreciated that. Um, character development, especially in horror, is sometimes lacking. They just refer to you know, certain types instead of ha having actual characters. They, they do the shorthand. And in this, there was not the shorthand. We had actual characters who had monologues and you understand their motivations. And yeah, for me, that was refreshing having those, those lengthy monologues. Yeah, as I told Mark, uh, you know, our last podcast, I have not watched any of Dexter, so I don't know. Of, uh, I only know of a little bit of, from one particular season, but I have a lot of catch up to do. And apparently, uh, yeah, New Blood has been well received by uh, by a lot of people that I know also. But in uh, uh, a Midnight Mass, yeah, uh, we, we yeah, as Mark mentioned, we we talked about it uh, last podcast. Um, great uh, sort of Stephen King esque sort of uh, story about uh, you know. Uh, 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 about how faith has just uh, completely been turned on its head in this small community, a small island community, and uh, it, it turns into something uh, very, uh, very tragic and very uh, um, uh, uh, horrific. And because uh, uh, in it, again, uh, Mike Flanagan, he's sort of uh, a, a patron saint of horror uh, shows and movies right now. And uh, thankfully, it looks like he's going to keep doing that for Netflix. Uh, so uh, yeah, we'll uh, definitely look forward to more stuff from him. But uh, so going on with my continuing with the double bill sort of uh, faves of last year picks, I'm going to go with uh, great musical acts. And uh, I'll start off with uh, Summer of Soul by Amir Thompson, otherwise known as Questlove from the Roots. Uh, it's about um, the Harlem Cultural Festival in uh, 1969, the same summer as Woodstock, but uh, does not get the same amount of sort of uh, uh, large cultural impact as the other festival that occurred in uh, upstate New York. But uh, thankfully, this, uh, this, this music festival was recorded, but it was shelved, uh, you know, since 1969 in a, just some sort of... Uh, editor's closet or something like that and then uh, uh Questlove came in uh and edited all the footage together uh, edited all the great acts from um Sly and the Family Stone, B.B. King, Gladys Knight, Nina Simone and others uh, that were able to show up and so just a wide range of great acts that uh that showed up for this and uh just uh, absolutely just a, a great concert uh, footage uh they they get up close to the talent uh, you also get crowd shots and also you get a lot of uh perspective uh from uh the patrons who who came to it and enjoyed it uh and you know uh, and how that affected them you know 50 years on uh so great uh great music and great documentary about this sort of um lesser known sort of uh, uh cultural event that uh thankfully is now uh 
you can watch it on um, uh, this uh, this documentary. And the other is um, uh, what came on Netflix, uh, sort of uh, beginning earlier this year. Uh, it's uh, Bo Burnham's Inside, and um, uh, it's interesting. You know, we're probably going to get a lot of these, but this is sort of the first that sort of encapsulates sort of that the feeling of isolation and. Uh, just depression and um, uh, the lows that you, that uh, people experienced while uh, you know, on lockdown from uh, uh, from 2020 all the way through you know uh, right now. But uh, uh, I, Bo Burnham sort of uh, wanted to create sort of this special because he wanted something to do during the time, and uh, he films. Uh, they they call it a TV variety special for whatever reason. It's a lot of. Um, a lot of behind the scenes stuff there, but uh, I'm including it as a movie, but uh, yeah, it's Bo Burnham. So he's a comedian. Uh, you probably know his work. Uh, he has a lot of, he did a lot of parody songs for some, um, uh, uh, on uh, some, uh, on some shows uh, in the past uh, decade. And he did, um, he had a directorial debut a few years ago. Uh, that was really great. Uh, but uh, this one is sort of just, again, encapsulates sort of that feeling of just um, the impending doom and just uh, isolation uh, being cut off, and, but uh, does it in a musical way. Uh, sort of uh, this, uh, you know, it's called, they categorize it as a TV variety special, but it, uh, the special is about uh, all the different things that go through your head while you're cut off uh, and while well, we were all cut off and living just digitally. Uh, you know, these past two years. And you're going to get a lot of these uh, because um, I'm sure uh, studios are, are going to try to, um, um, they're going to try to turn this period into profits uh, somehow, some shape or way or form. And, uh, but uh, thankfully, this is sort of the first, and I think probably only uh, good uh, perspective into that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's both Summer of Soul and uh, Bo Burns Inside, both sort of uh, really great musical acts. Uh, very different, uh, but uh, uh, great, to, uh, great to watch. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, Summer of Soul, that's on Hulu. Uh, I did start see. I did watch like a little bit of it. I have to go back to it to finish watching that. But um, inside, I do now that um, now that you mention it, I I did see kind of like some some uh, previews of it, and I gotta check that out. Yeah, Summer of Soul. It's like, how could this go for so long without being kind of uncovered? I mean, this is before I was born. I was born early 70s, you know, and had never even heard of that particular festival. And for all the, the fanfare that Woodstock gets for this to receive no attention, I even heard, even mentioned really, um, is, is, is mind blowing. Um, never mind the fact that I'm an old fogey and, and kind of love real instruments being played because oh, today <laughs> it's somebody with a keyboard like or um just a computer a laptop computer using some some tools um but yeah just just to, to reminisce and go back and listen to some of the old favorites um playing music uh live where people could actually sing there's no auto tune uh, you had to carry a tune uh, in order to to be able to to get put on, uh, if you didn't have the talent, you wouldn't make it. Um, it's just a, a stark contrast to today, where it's all about packaging, less about you know uh, talent. There you see the talent on display um, in its abundance, and uh, just thoroughly you know enjoyed that one. 
Uh, thanks, Questlove, for, for bringing that back to the surface. And I've not seen the Bo Burnham one, but I'll, I'll certainly check that out. Yeah, very different, uh, very different musical from uh, Bo Burnham. But yeah, Summer of Soul, uh, perfectly agreed. Yeah, this is just, yeah, why did this just get, uh, you know, tossed, you know, hidden in a closet for 50 years or so? And uh, yeah, uh, thank God that it was found and that uh, now that uh, everyone can watch it and enjoy at least uh, a couple hours of this, uh, you know, week, uh, I think it was uh, over a few weeks, actually, that the whole, that the festival went on. Yeah, that's when music was really music. You know, and you kind of miss that. And um, this is something that I have to mention. There's a couple of things, that, but I can't really do a double feature because the two things that's on my mind right now are not connected whatsoever. But I, I'm going to start with this one. Now, I know it's a superhero movie, but I have to mention Zack Snyder's Justice League. Okay. And I have to mention it because that, uh, you know, I saw the original, uh, the uh, Josh Whedon version of it. And to compare, kind of like, um, just like Mark was saying about uh, comparing Suicide Squad with the Suicide Squad, you could kind of do the same thing here, compare the Josh Whedon and Jack Snyder versions. And you could see how, um, how uh, sometimes we have interference with uh, uh, people messing with the director's vision and so on and so forth. The studios, the studio heads, uh, they want people to change stuff up and want to like, you know, um, they think they know, you know, they want, you know, the director wants to do one thing and the studio heads are like, no, I want you to do it this way. And it gets so convoluted and messed up. Um, that you to, to actually see the director's version of vision, you can see how there's probably a lot of movies out there that weren't very good, that if uh, there was no interference with the studio heads, bumping heads with the, of course the studio heads are gonna win out because they're coming up with the money, that there are probably a lot of movies out there that could have been way better if this you know, director got to do what he wanted to do. And um, this film, I believe, is about three hours. Let me tell you something. Um, I This three-hour film did not feel like three hours to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not, like I said, it's not perfect. Because there were, I know we talked about this film before, where you had, like, the uh, too many slow motion shots and so on and so forth. Okay, maybe you could have cut that down, so on and so forth. But at the same time, it's like, wow, it kind of blew my mind how you could take something three hours and doesn't feel like it. And if I do do a double feature, it would have to be No Way Home. Spider-Man No Way Home, the same thing. That was three hours and it, it, it didn't feel like it. You know what I mean? And um, Spider-Man, I have to talk about that. I have to throw that out there too because the storytelling in that, it's the way they took all this all this material and the way they organized it and the pacing and so on and so forth. So No Way Spider-Man, No Way Home and Justice League. Two superhero movies. Yeah, granted, you know, I know some people have superhero fatigue. It's not just you, Jeff. I mean, even though I like that genre, sometimes you, you have to, you know, you know, 
it's like your favorite genre of music. Sometimes you have to listen to, to other genres too. But I think those two films are the top of the superhero genre. Um, it was just masterful. It was just, you know, it's just well made. It looks good. Um, it, good acting. Um, uh, you know, I really enjoyed um, both these films. And I would have to say, in terms of my favorite films of 2021, those two really have to be uh, very close to the top of it. Yeah, I would second that on, on uh, the Justice League versus the Justice League. Uh, <laughs> you know, just that kind of comparison. Uh, stark contrast in terms of, of the, the quality of those movies. And I think that's, I guess, in a nutshell, one of the differences between, I guess, uh, what's happening with DC and, and Marvel. It seems as if the people who are uh, running Marvel Studios have an understanding and an appreciation for the source material uh, and the the dedicated fans of Marvel, whereas uh, with Warner Brothers kind of being in control of uh, the DCEU, um, they're, they're more concerned about, um, I, I'm guessing, um, the marketability of the product to the broadest audience possible. And as we know in, in writing, uh, specific is the key to the universal. So for specific in talking about, you know, what's happening or what has happened in, in the actual comics, then you'll, you'll grab a, a large audience. You don't have to worry about augmenting what you're doing to catch a large audience, which, which I think uh, the DCEU is, has done and did with the the, um, the original Justice uh, Justice League uh, play on, on, on Joss Whedon's name. But um, yeah, so what we saw in Zack Snyder, was somebody who was allowed to maintain his vision throughout the process, go back and, and kind of rework it. Uh, so his original vision came through and it was much more successful in terms of being a co cohesive uh, piece of work. Um, yes, there's complaints about the, the, the slow-mo uh, being used uh, way too often, but I, I can stomach that as long as the story is tight uh, and makes sense, which the, the Whedon version did not. And then as far as Spider-Man, um, No Way Home, um, you know, I, I did venture out into the theater to check that one out. Um, and I think of all the properties that are out there with Marvel right now, this is the, the piece, the, the Spider-Man character is the one that they're kind of hinging a lot of uh, the success on. It's the familiar uh, character uh, with, you know, Iron Man being gone and, and Captain America gone. Um, and with uh, the, the problems they've had with the public perception of of, of um, Captain Marvel um, and Brie Larson, who, who who has embodied that character, not that I have any problems with it, but some fans do. Uh, right now, Spider Man is the guy, uh, is the character that that everything is kind of um, hinging upon. He's that that one kind of linchpin that kind of connects uh, everything, and we've just seen like what you might consider to be the completion of a trilogy of Spider-Man movies. Will they go beyond three? Like nobody else has gotten more than three flicks, no other character, but I, I can see Spider-Man getting many more given the age of the character, the actor rather, um, the, the excitement around this character, uh, the, the recent box office uh, of the, this movie, 
Um, but the one thing I'll say about this uh, No Way Home was that maybe I'm being too too uh, much of a cynic, but they, they they relied far too much on um, the nostalgia, and of course we we know we knew they're going to bring in um, the older uh, versions of Spider Man, uh, the Raimi uh, uh, directed. Um, version of Spider-Man with uh, Tobey Maguire and then the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man into the mix as well. Um, but I think it could have taken a little bit, a smidge off of the nostalgia piece um, because I think it weighed too heavily on that. I'm just, maybe I'm just nitpicking, but that's how it felt to me. So it, it, yes, it's good, but uh, I was expecting a little bit uh, more in I mean, less nostalgia. And as I mentioned in, the, in one of the last podcasts, less of a, um, ob, less of an obvious kind of a, a connector to whatever's happening next, right? It's almost like the, the Marvel movies for all the greatness that, that, that they are. Um, there's been in, in recent years, a preoccupation with trying to find ways to connect to the next movie. And it becomes obvious. This is, this is the connecting point, the connecting story. I wish they'd, they'd have, a little uh, more standalone with some little, you know, um, Easter eggs and less obvious stuff that's going to connect to the next movie. Yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan of, uh, you know, Zack Schneider's uh, Justice League as I, uh, you know, you can watch, you can listen to us uh, talk about that one as well in our sort of DC versus Marvel podcast. Um, it is an improvement on uh, the uh, 2017 version, uh, but uh, I think that's a particularly low bar to clear. Um I did like certain elements of it. Uh, uh, certain uh, character beats are restored from the the, the original intent, and uh, you know, um, uh, not sort of left incomplete as was with uh, Joss Whedon's uh, sort of Justice League. But um, by and large, I just thought it ran too long and t- way too much slow mo. Way too much slow mo. Uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, Schneider, so yeah, he loves that. Um, uh, 60 frames for, or maybe even 120 frames per second, but uh, it got a little uh, tiresome by the 15th time uh, you see someone uh, go do it using speed force. Um, as for Spider-Man, yeah, we just talked about it. As I said, I, I am experiencing of super fatigue at this point. So I, I, and I have to be very picky about which ones I really want to continue with. Um, and I, the, I, I do like this one. It's an improvement over Far From Home. But uh, again, I thought Far From Home was one of the worst uh, MCU movies. Uh, so they could, it could only go up from there. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, uh, the you know uh, worst kept secret was uh, that uh, they would bring all the spy- previous versions of Spider-Man into the MCU. And, uh, the, and on that note, yeah, they did a good job with it. Uh, all of the um, sort of personality and uh, old uh, character arcs that they, they that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield went through in their sort of iterations uh, come through and uh, they play off well off of uh, Tom Holland's uh, you know, latest uh, version of, uh, of the web slinger. Um, but uh, staying on that uh, sort of uh, with uh, blockbusters and, you know, big, uh, big name movies that uh, that I want that uh, usually don't make uh, my list. I try to preference sort of the smaller budgeted uh, indies, uh, the one I want to bring more light to. But uh, staying on that, I'll mention uh, No Time to Die, the latest uh, James Bond outing, and Dune uh, from the latest from Denis Villeneuve, uh, the sci-fi epic that uh, had, that baffled David Lynch back in the eighties. Uh, but thankfully, uh, Villeneuve has a better handle of the material with. Um, it's a great ensemble cast. Uh, yeah, so uh, Dune is yeah uh, the biggest uh, 
down for it didn't quite wouldn't make my top uh, like 20 or so is that yeah it's a part one it's a very obvious uh, part one but uh great setup for the uh, this series uh very great entry uh uh, you know, the, the greenlit part, uh, you know, tune. Uh, so hopefully uh, uh, the filmmakers in an ensemble continue with that uh, uh, because it is one of my favorite sci-fi epics and uh, hopefully they do it justice on the big screen this time. But uh, No Time to Die was the last run for Daniel Craig as, uh, as, as 007 and uh, a great finale to his arc, I, I believe. Uh, and um, again, no spoiling stuff, so I won't go into the particulars, but uh, they do stuff here that hasn't been done in this 50-year-old um, uh, franchise, which is astounding. Um, and uh, they do a great job with um, with the character, at least Daniel Craig's version of the character. And um, they give us a, uh, and again, it's just a great send off uh, for Daniel Craig and uh, his, uh, you know, his iteration of Bond. And it shows that, uh, you know, this, you know, holdover franchise from the early '60s. Uh, you know, they can still find uh, new uh, new beats to play with and uh, new storylines to give us, uh, even though the the tropes are well worn and have been parodied. But uh, uh, Kerry Fukunaga from um, uh, True Detective season one uh, really does a great job with this one. I thought. You know, you mentioned uh, doing things that have never been done in the Bond film, but folks don't know that happens in this movie. They bring back George Lazenby. And Timothy Dalton and, and Robert. It's Moore. a Bond verse. It's a Bond uh, verse. Yeah, universe you, ruined Bond it, Bond verse. you ruined it, Mark. Damn it. <laughs> and all the Bond villains. All the Bond Ooh, villains come back. Go. All the ones. Yep. Yep. There you go. Mark, you ruined it. Damn it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree too. And um, No Time to Die is also on my top 10 uh, 2021 films. And um, um, what's the other one you mentioned? Uh, no Time to Die. Um, oh, yeah. Doom. Doom, it didn't make mine because I'm waiting for the second part. So, um, because I, you know, basically, basically, it's kind of reminded me of Lord of the Rings. So it's like I know everybody likes the third Lord of the Rings, but I kind of think of it as all one great big movie. And 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 I think uh, Doom is going to be that way for me. It's going to be one big movie. So it's so like when the second part comes out, then I can say, you know depending how good that is, that will probably end up, if it's, you know, good as well, um, that, that will make, that will crack the top uh, 10 films. But Daniel Craig is definitely my favorite Bond. And um, it was a great finale for his brand as James Bond. And um, yeah, so I, I I agree with everything you said. Matter of fact, everything I thought about the film, you pretty much said it all. Yeah, and as far as Dune is concerned, you know, I, I thought of it less like Lord of the Rings and more like um, Matrix Reloaded. And that felt like it was just truncated, it's cut off. You know, it's like, wait a second, like complete a thought. I understand you want to have a, the next movie, but like, it seems like they, they didn't complete, like you, you promised we're going on this journey uh, and the journey, you know, isn't complete, which in a lot of movies might have a cliffhanger, but I still think there was something left um, that could have been, I don't know, it, that doesn't explain, but, but I, didn't, I didn't feel like it, it was full, it was, it was, it was finished. Um, we can have a finished movie and have questions for the next one. But uh, I just didn't, I thought that they, they, they um, I don't know, 
for me at least, and what I was expecting, and I just didn't think they completed a thought. Fair enough. Yeah, no, no. I even mentioned that the reason why it's not higher on my list. Yeah, it is definitely a setup for you know the main story of uh, of what happens to uh, Paul Atreides. But um, I think it just the filmmaking was just so overwhelmingly great in that that I just have to mention it. Uh, I think they do such a great job with. And again, I know you know CGI gets a lot of uh, flack these days, uh, you know, understandably so. But I think here it's done so well and so meticulously that it blends in with the backgrounds, it blends in with the foregrounds and everything. They do such a great job with uh, all the special effects work and the stunts and everything that I just have to mention it. Even though, yes, you're right, it is uh, definitely a hard part one uh, without really a um, uh, without closure on, on on several ends. Yeah, for me, I have to mention this uh, TV uh, series, and that's Wonder Years. I like the initial Wonder Years um, back in, I believe it came out in the late 80s, maybe, early 90s or something, somewhere around there with Fred Savage. Uh, I did like that. I, you know, I'm a sucker for come-of-age films, Stand By Me and stuff like that, Sandlot, what have you. Uh, even 8-bit. So maybe I could do a double feature that way. One is a film and one is a TV series. So 8-bit uh, is a Christmas movie. So first let me talk about Wonder Years. Um, just one thing that was um, kind of irking me a little bit, like I said, um, I'm being nitpicky here, but the fact that they're calling it Wonder Years, it's like almost, uh, you know, makes you think it's a reboot. And uh, the Wonder Years uh, is all black cast. It's like, it's not a reboot of Wonder Years with all black cast. To me, it's just a different show. Uh, Fred Savage actually directs quite a few episodes. Um, I, I don't think he wrote any of them, but he definitely directed some of them. And um, I mean, it's funny and it's, it's so relatable because, you know, growing up in uh, the 70s and, you know, 80s, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm young and everything and some of the stuff that the character goes through it's so relatable that it's like, yeah, you you watch it, it's like, oh my God, you know, you could kind of you could you could feel everything that the character's going through and you know his feelings about it and everything like that. It's so relatable. Um, I think anybody can relate to it, no matter you know what background you are, because you know it's just so universal. But um, also, you know, I'm just happy to see some uh, positive representations of black family you really get that i mean you have blackish you know but um you really don't get a lot of like the black family unit in a positive light you know um i mean you do have some you know it started out talking about some political stuff but um uh i remember uh when um those episode when martin luther king was assassinated and how they felt about it, the community and everything. But for the most part, you know, um, it's just some everyday universal experience that we have uh, growing up. Uh, very good performances, um, uh, just beautiful people um, that's going through life that's so relatable. So at 8-Bit too, it's like Christmas movie, that's on HBO Max. And I think one year, I think that's on ABC. Well, um, I think it comes on Wednesdays. Uh, so, but 8-Bit, like I said, is on HBO Max. So the reason why I call 8-Bit 
this around the time when the first, the very first Nintendo, no, actually, is it, yeah, the very first Nintendo came out. And if you had, uh, it's one, you know, every Christmas there's this hot toy. And sometimes there's a video game, like 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 right now, PlayStation 5 is hot because nobody, nobody can get the damn thing. But there are reasons why, because of COVID whole pandemic, there's like a certain part that's why they can't, they can't make more. And then if you have it, if you if you have a copy, you can sell that thing for, it usually costs like 400 and something dollars. You can sell that for $1,500 if you wanted to. This is how hard it is. But so this has always been a case. And even back then, when that came out, and I believe that came out in the mid eighties, I believe the first Nintendo, so what it is, this this kid, he has the Nintendo. He's he's kind of like a superhero in a way, because he has just like everybody, everybody's trying to like fight to come into his house. People got to take tickets to come to his house and play this video game, and you know. But anyways, um, you know, like I said, we have HBO Max. Definitely check check it out, and it's um, very nostalgic um especially if you grew up in the 80s and so on so on. it's just an overall great film so those are two come of age films that i recommend that came out in 2021 i should check out yeah i haven't uh checked out either of those um but um i'll uh, i'm trying to stay because uh, i mentioned so much tv last time I, I'll, I'll try to stick to uh, just the movies uh uh, for now, because I do have a few more to get to. Uh, hopefully, we have at the time. Uh, so, but my, so my next category, a double bill, is uh, uh, weird international titles, um, and this is uh, this goes for the worst person in the world and drive my car. Um, so, yeah, again, uh, weird international titles. Um, so, worst person in the world is from Norway. No, not Norway. Uh, is from. It's from one, it's from a Norway, Finland. Oh, oh, yeah, it's from, uh, but it's from uh, Joaquin Trier, who's, um, ah, Norway, that's right, because um, it's the Oslo trilogy. But um, anyway, uh, so the worst person in the world, again, weird title, but um, it's a, a sort of, it's a coming of age, so it ties in with uh, a sort of Kenyatta's uh, sort of picks uh, about the uh, Julie, who's, uh, you know, uh, just out of college and, uh, you know, has all the opportunities in the world ahead of her, but uh, can't decide on exactly what path to go to in order to achieve, uh, you know, uh, satisfaction, happiness, that all the, all the good stuff. Um, and um, as time goes on, uh, you know, we see her all the way into her early thirties and uh, it sort of becomes a sort of a millennial coming of it, coming of age story uh, that really resonated with me, of course. Yeah. Because I'm right smack dab in that age range and uh this uh, spoke to me completely and um almost uh, eerily of how well it captures sort of um this feel that my generation is going through right now uh you know even pandemic aside of uh, just uh being um 
being in the internet era or digital era and just uh, having all the tools in the world to work with, but not knowing exactly what path to choose. And I, I think it did, uh, uh, worst person in the world does that uh, fantastically. And uh, Drive My Car, they don't use the Beatles song, uh, unfortunately, uh, anywhere, but uh, it's from um, Ryusuke Hamaguchi and it's uh, up for uh, best international uh, award for the Oscars. It's a, <laughs> people think this might be a parody. It's a three hour long uh, Japanese movie that about a sort of closed off uh, 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 playwright who, um, uh, who has to accept that uh, his recently deceased wife cheated on him with a uh, another uh, actor in that uh, he was uh, he, uh, he was in a play with, and um, uh, uh, he goes to a, a sort of uh, a stage festival in um, near Hiroshima, and um, in order to try and perform his signature play Uncle Vanya and anti uh, Anton Chekhov. <laughs> Again, this sounds like this doesn't sound like a parody of movies that I would like, but. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, to cut a three-hour-long story sh uh, off there, uh, basically uh, the title refers to um, how much he wants, he, he listens in the car to his plays in order to practice uh, the lines and everything, but um, he's, uh, he's forced to not be alone this time because the, the festival provides a driver in order for safety purposes, in order to get the talent from uh, the, the hotels to the uh, main uh, uh the, the main stage, uh, the, the staging area. But uh, anyway, yep, two weird titles, but uh, I really did love them. And uh, they, they're receiving a lot of acclaim right now because they're just getting their releases uh, in theaters, but uh, definitely highly deserving of all the praise. Yeah, I haven't heard. I mean, I noticed that about you. You, you always find these gems and, uh, you know, stuff I never heard of, but I definitely will, will check that out. And I always look at your list to kind of say, hey, uh, what's some good stuff out there that I never heard of and, you know, that uh, it's a shame that, you know, get to, you know, uh, you know, hear about some of this stuff, but you have a knack of finding these gems. So, um, all right. So I guess one more thing I'm going to throw out there and uh, we, we talked about King Richard, so that's in my top 10, but we're not going to really uh, talk too much about it because we already did a whole thing on it. But one more I really want to mention is called Dope Stick. And um, that's what Michael Keaton, and I did mention it one time in another podcast. And the reason why I think it's a very important film for me, from my standpoint, is because, I mean, you had great performances and all that, but even though it's about the opioid epidemic and you have uh, people going against um, the big farmer and everything, but it kind of harkens me back to, not just back to, but even now uh, we're doing this whole thing with uh, COVID and everything, how people, um, you can't really criticize it. Uh, you can't have, there's a certain narrative out there now. If you go against that narrative, you get canceled, you get vilified, you get socially vilified, you get, you know, um, anyways, um, you know, this is this divide in the country and so on and so forth. And if if if, you, if what you have to say, what what people love to say is, um, I'll I'll listen to the medical professionals and the scientific community. 
the science community, right? Same thing with Dope Sick. Dope Sick, basically Big Pharma controlled the narrative. They tricked the medical community and they manipulated the science community. They were paying people in the science community to, um, to, to kind of join in with their narrative. There was a lot of manipulation going on. So everything, even though that was about the opioid, uh, opioids and everything, the whole epidemic, it kind of, you could kind of you kind of could replace that with anything. You could replace it with COVID. You could, but anyways, it's like it goes to show you um, how this big farmer they we have enough money, you could control the narrative and 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 and, and we have the masses. You can manipulate the masses. You can manipulate facts. You can. So on and so forth, and a lot of like news stations, for example, um, you cannot uh, say a lot of stuff about vaccinations and stuff like that unless it fits that narrative, because a lot of these news stations are sponsored by Pfizer or whatever, whatever. So of course they won't make money. So, anyways, so I I just think, and it was just a, it was a, it was a, it was it was entertaining watch. It was very well made. So. Um, that's one of the last ones I'm going to make because I know we kind of ran out of time. Yeah, dope sick is, is um, I think is Michael Keaton in that one. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, and it's on Hulu too. Yes. 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 Definitely got to see that. It's in my queue, if you will. Um. Yeah. So for me, that that's it with from my list. Um. But one thing that I, I do, I'll just say this, and this, I guess this can be my, my uh, final word on the best of 2021. And that is that with so many, you know, platforms, streaming services, um, so much content out there, um, you kind of need a podcast or need lists, you need something to help you find this stuff. Because it seems like, you know, when I was, you know, a young person in the 80s, um, you go to the video store, Blockbuster or whatever, there'd be tons of titles on the shelf and some of that stuff straight to, to, to video. And you could tell sometimes by a cover, you, know, you could, shouldn't judge by its cover, but sometimes from a cover, how cheaply done it is, I'm like, I'm, I'll bypass this one. But it's hard to figure out now with, every, with all the streaming stuff, where's the crap, where's the good stuff, what's a hidden gem? And uh, I thank both of you for exposing me to some things I had not heard of. Um, and this is what's necessary to find those hidden gems because there's just so much stuff out there. You just don't know where to look sometimes to find uh, these things. So it's not always the obvious pick, the, 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 the Hollywood blockbuster. It's sometimes the indie gem that's uh, hiding someplace under a, uh, a leaf. <laughs> you guys helped me find that. So thanks so much for that. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, and you're right. Uh, you know, I guess this would just go for our final round, uh, final word round. Uh, yeah, because of the sort of proliferation of streaming services and even networks are still in the game a little bit. But uh, uh, yeah, you just need to have friends or you need to have podcasts in order to really help you find some of these because, yeah, by and large, uh, the big studios are in it for the superhero game. Uh, they will promote that. They'll they'll promote those ad nausea because they know those will get the most butts and seats. Uh, but uh, the smaller movies that uh, a lot of us have mentioned, uh, yeah, by and large, they won't get the same sort of promotional 
tour and, uh, you know, they won't get the talk shows, uh, you know, booking uh, talent and anything, but um, yeah, these definitely deserve uh, the same sort of views. They definitely deserve an audience because um, the amount of effort that goes into these is a, uh, you know, a wide ranging uh, of, uh, of just effort that gets put into these that uh, unfortunately so few do, uh, do find, uh, you know, not, not on the fault of the audience, because again, the proliferation of streaming services and home viewing and uh, even in theatrical, uh, you know, uh, time slots uh, just make that harder, but um, we're glad to provide that. Yeah. And I agree with everything that everybody said. Um, no, I think because, like I said, the, the pandemic is just changing a lot of stuff uh, in terms of how we see films. Because, like I said, No Way Home made about, I, I had to make a billion dollars so far. But that is kind of like the uh, outlier, uh, especially nowadays. So all the smaller films, like, uh, let's say, like The Last Duel, for example, uh, uh, under normal circumstances, it would take a while, it would take longer to come to uh, like HBO Max or streaming. And it's like Nightmare Alley was just in the theater not too long ago and already it's on Who and it's on um, HBO Max. Films like that, um, the reason why I wanted to see it because Guillermo del Toro um, made the film, but uh, my point is, it's probably didn't make a lot of money. Like, I'm surprised that the Suicide Squad didn't make more money, but I'm pretty sure the Batman will probably make a lot of money. So this is why they're probably leaning more towards these tempo superhero movies, because that's where the money is. Like, smaller films, like some of the stuff that we mentioned, um, even though people like them, and they're not going to the movies like they used to, to watch these films, like Wrath of Man, I did see it in the theater, but if it were to come out today, you know, um, it, it's, I mean, when I went, the theater was pretty empty. So uh, the smaller films, they're not, you know, unless things change with the pandemic, they're not. So anyways, uh, so, so I think a lot of uh, Netflix and all them, Hulu's, they're gonna be a lot more originals that have the smaller films that you get to see right away. So, um, and then there's so much content, like you said, like podcasts and recommendation from, from uh, friends helps you find, you know, there's so much stuff to pick through to help you kind of circumnavigate through all the content that's uh, out there. We hope you enjoyed this podcast on our favorite movies from 2021. You can let us know some of your own by emailing us, messaging us on the social media feeds, and leaving us some voice messages on anchor.fm. Next time up, we're talking about Steven Soderbergh's latest COVID isolation thriller, Kimmy. Feel free to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. You can support this podcast and the Screenwriters Group with a monthly donation by clicking the support button on anchor.fm. You can join Kenyatta and I at our virtual screenwriters forums by RSVPing either on meetup.com and or Facebook. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch our forum recordings and other videos. Links are in the description. We wish you all the best in your writing and other life's pursuits. Get vaxxed, stay masked, and be safe out there. Thank you.